The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, welcome to the show. So happy you're tuning in to Dose of Leadership. As always, thank you for your support. Man, I'm so excited to have Martha McCallum on the show. She's from Fox News. I'm sure you've seen her. About almost every serious political activity or event she's been a part of on Fox News since 2004, since the 2004 presidential election, you've seen her on Fox News. Uh, you've probably seen her working with um, Brett, Brett Baer, the chief political anchor on Fox News. And uh, as we're releasing this, it's September 28th. Tomorrow, September 29th, as we're recording this, is the first presidential debate, debate which Chris Wallace is moderating. But Martha, along with Brett Baer, are going to provide the pre and post analysis, which I enjoy watching. I enjoy watching the analysis more than I watch like watching the debate. But um, that's what she's a part of. And I, the reason why I brought her on the show is because she had this book come out in February. And I tried to do this then when the book push was coming, but then COVID happened and everything kind of got sideways. But finally, things have kind of settled down. And I finally got her back or finally got her on the show. And she's got this book called Unknown Valor. It's a story of family, courage, and sacrifice from Pearl Harbor to Iwo Jima. And it's about the behind-the-scenes struggle or the sacrifices of everything uh, that happened in Iwo Jima. And, of course, Iwo Jima is important to me as a prior Marine. I've studied it, read many books, so many books about it. I mean, it, it really is a place of reverence for any Marine that knows anything about the history of that battle. It's just with so many lives lost, so many casualties uh, on both sides, on such a small strip of land, but it was a critical battle. And we've all seen the famous picture of the flag raising of Iwo Jima, right? The iconic World War II picture. But what I love about this, and particularly if you've never, not a fan of history, and maybe think, well, how does it pertain to to leadership and everything else? I, it, there's a lot of takeaways there. And I think for me, when when you listen to this conversation with me and Martha, that's what Martha got from it, because she's not a, she wasn't a fan of, of history. She knew on the surface levels about Iwo Jima and World War II, but she really deep dove into this because she had a relative. She had some letters that she found from a great aunt of a family member who actually died uh, over there. And um, those letters sparked a kind of investigation in this book, and her life was changed by it. And that's what I think is important. When you study history, and the reason why I study history, particularly the sacrifices that were made, as a leader, it helps you to always put things in perspective, to realize how good we have it now, uh, to realize that there's been so many challenges, that we're standing on so many great shoulders. And I think it's our obligation to give reverence to that. And uh, that's why I think this book is important. I love this book. It is it is my favorite book about Iwo Jima. Uh, it's written so well, and I highly encourage you to check this book out. It, fan of history or not, it doesn't matter. Uh, this will impact your life deeply. Trust me. Trust me on this. I want you to get this book. I want you to read it, and I want you to reach out to me and t let me know what you thought. And Martha is just so fun to talk to. So fun, so great. Such uh, And I wish it could have gone on longer. 
I'd love to get her back to deep dive in some more, particularly political stuff at a later date. But this is what we focused on. We do talk a little bit about the debate here, but you're going to have so much fun listening to this. All right. This show is brought to you by my brand new sponsor, Hutton. They design, build, and service commercial construction projects all throughout the Midwest. They're longtime fans of this show, supporters of me personally. I know the CEO. They're committed to the highest standards of leadership. And I'm so glad they're supporting those of leadership as a sponsor. They build so many things, stunning structures from the ground up, remodeled hospitals, medical buildings, manufacturing, industrial facilities, financial institutions, churches, schools, all over the place. They are so good. They, they are both architects and builders. And that's what a client wants, really, right? A single trusted partner to work with from start to finish. They get that at Hutton. I love their vision. And most importantly, I love their culture. It's always people over projects, always. That's how they treat their clients. That's how they treat their employees. That's how they treat their community. Character counts for them, and that's important for me. And that's why I'm so happy to have them a part of Dose of Leadership. It's not lip service, folks. They're great. So if you've got a construction project you're looking for, if you're interested, go check them out. That's Hutton, all about character. And I'm so happy that they're a sponsor in Dose of Leadership. All right, let's get into this conversation. Fun conversation. Insightful conversation with Martha McCallum from Fox News here on Dose of Leadership. Martha McCallum, here you are on Dose of Leadership. I can't believe it. Welcome to the show. Oh, it's great to be here, Richard. Thank you for having me. Big fan of you, obviously, and uh, and your work that you've done, and obviously a big fan of, of the book, uh, being a prior Marine. Um, Thank you. Unknown Valor. Now, what prompted you to, to write this? I think I know the answer to this. I've seen you say it, but I just, I'm curious about why you got so passionate about World War II, about that generation, and specifically Iwo Jima. It was a personal connection when I was growing up. My mom used to occasionally take out letters that were written to her and to her father by her beloved cousin, Harry Gray, who had been killed at Iwo Jima when he was only 18 years old. And the grief from his death just sort of was there. It never went away. Um, It wasn't something we talked about all the time, obviously, but um, it was very real. And when I read the letters, they're so beautiful. And he was such an eloquent 18-year-old and wrote great informative letters that had a lot of information in them about what was going on. And they would often, when I did pull them out and dust them off and read them, I couldn't really get through them without being brought to tears. Mm -hmm. So, and of course I never knew him, but his mother, my aunt, Anne was someone I was very close to. And his sister, my aunt, Nancy, also someone I was very close to and, and became, got to know on such a deeper level through the writing of this book, which I'm grateful for. So when I started to think about writing a book, I just sort of couldn't get around this subject. It was, it felt as if it was calling me. And it was a story that I sort of needed to tell. And I also knew I wanted, if I was going to spend the time and effort writing a book, I wanted it to be a real book, a book about history, a book where I would learn a lot. So if I was going to take time away from my work and my personal life to dedicate myself to this, I wanted it to be uh, an experience that would pay off for me, you know, that would yeah. teach me a lot. Mm-hmm. So it did that in spades. And honestly, by the time I was done, I thought if this book doesn't sell more than 10 copies, it will still have been worth it to me. Yeah. You know, I, 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 under, it resonates with me because I became <laughs> friends, obviously 
in the Marine Corps and we look at Iwo Jima with, with sacrosanct. And I've never visited the island. You were fortunate enough to actually put your feet on the ground there. And yes. I've flown over it a few times when I was in the Marine Corps. I was a pilot in the Marine Corps and we would fly over Iwo Jima going back and forth from Okinawa and stuff. Yeah. And, and, and it was weird when every time we'd fly over it, you know, we'd all be talking and, and joking and this and that. But when you'd fly over it, there'd just be this stunned silence every time we'd fly over Iwo Jima and to give you these chills. Just because if anybody studies it and knows the stories in particular, that how many people sacrificed their lives and were injured. It's just phenomenal to think about the numbers mm-hmm. and the short amount of days that were there on such a, you know, three square mile a piece of dirt, you know, it's just yeah. crazy. It really is. It's it's almost as if it's a piece of the moon right. floating in the middle of the Pacific. And I completely connect with what you're saying. Of course, I have never served, um, but I was on this flight that only goes to Iwo Jima once a year. It's, uh, it's, uh, to you know it's a memorial flight to honor those who were lost there and it is a, a memorial that has japanese dignitaries that attend and uh, american veterans that attend and their families and a few reporters and people who are interested get get to go on this flight so i was really fortunate to be on it and there was this amazing camaraderie on the flight right. and we had all traveled a lot i flew from Newark to Tokyo and then Tokyo to Guam and then Guam ultimately to Iwo Jima on the day of our trip there. And it's a day trip. You go in the morning, a couple hours on the plane, you fly back that evening. And the Japanese government has complete control over Iwo Jima. Uh, They have since the 60s. So they dictate the amount of time that Americans are allowed to be on the island, which in and of itself is sort of an interesting situation when you think about (laughs) it. But um so it's all very regimented. When you land, they take your passports away. They put them in a bag. When you're ready to go, they give them back to you uh, and you can leave. But when we were flying from Guam to Iwo Jima and the plane was obviously only people who were all on this singular mission. And we had in first class about five, I believe, uh, Iwo Jima veterans who were on it. A couple of them were from Tarawa, but there were five, I believe, Iwo Jima veterans, a couple of whom had never been back. So we're same sort of camaraderie. Everyone's joking around a little bit, talking to each other. We've all getting to know each other over the last few days on Guam and some of the things that we did together before that. But as soon as the pilot said, okay, you're going to see Iwo Jima now coming up on your left as soon as we dip under these clouds. And as soon as we dipped under those clouds, there was silence across the plane. And I looked over at some of these veterans looking down on the island through the window, hadn't been there since they were 17, 18, 19 years old. And you could feel that flood of emotion come over them when they saw it. And I will never forget the dramatic approach to that island and landing on it. It's still steaming uh, as a volcano in different parts of the island. So it's, it smokes while you're looking at it. It's, it's kind of a surreal place. Yeah, that gives me chills just even thinking about that. I can't imagine. I you know, I befriended a, a um, Iwo Jima vet, um, and he passed away fittingly on Memorial Day of uh, four years ago. And, um, you know, like so many other stories, you know, he lied about his age. He was 16. You know, he squandered his way into the Marine Corps. He's 16. You know, went to um, latter half of Guadalcanal, uh, Tarawa, or Pelu or Tarawa. I can't remember what the middle one was. And then the last one, you know, he's 18 years old and he's on that first wave of Iwo Jima. And um, it's just, you know, the the Cliff Notes version of the story is, you know, he his best buddy, as they got off the landing craft, you know, and his buddy said, I'll see you sometime, uh, hook up with you later tonight. 
and he went left and mm-hmm. he went right and he never saw him again. Didn't even know what happened to mm-hmm. him, you know. And then mm-hmm. ne- never saw a live Japanese soldier for 17 days, mm-hmm. went unscathed, and then he came up out of kind of a, a defilade lower position and came up and and he saw a Jap- a Jap- two Japanese soldiers who had captured a um, U.S. machine gun position and had it turned around towards them. And anyway, he got shot in the back, long story short. Um, mm. took took back to the the front lines, which through the whole campaign, as you know, of studying this, it was always under because the island's so small. It was never like a safe place to be, right? And so, no. waited around, almost got an overdose of morphine because the first guy that gave him morphine didn't mark that he gave him morphine, you know. So that saved him, and then he sat on the beach and ex- exited or evacuated to a rescue ship. The rescue ship said, "Sorry, we're full." Had to turn around, and go back. <laughs> And oh some gosh. army doc did makeshift surgery, you know, on him, taking out his intestines and taking a small part out. And it, luckily it missed everything. And because he hadn't eaten, didn't really have anything, his intestines, so he didn't get an infection. And, it, and he lived, you know, and he, and he showed me Amazing. all those stories. And, you know, the letter that was in his breast pocket from his aunt that had the bullet hole in it with blood on it and this and that. And I'm thinking, God, this guy was 18 years old. And, you know, my worst stress when I was 18 was trying to buy beer with a fake ID. You know, that was, that was the, <laughs> that was the, ex, the extent of my stress. And I know. It, 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 and I'm sure that's like you said, the lessons it gave you, it's that perspective when you talk to these and hear those stories and it just, it just puts everything in so, so much perspective. I, I know I said Absolutely. a lot. Yeah. I mean, what an amazing hero that gentleman is. Most people, you know, I think it's rare to have been in that many of the island campaigns. That's just an extraordinary experience of for most of the the guys that I got to know, because through writing the book, I never anticipated. I didn't know anything about what had happened to Harry Gray on the island. And I didn't really know anything about Iwo Jima other than yeah. uh, the flag raising. So and, it was, um, it was you know, all <laughs> new for you. Yeah. Yeah. It was all new to me. You know, I had seen... Uh, a couple of Clint Eastwood movies and I knew about the flag raising. (laughs) That that was pretty much it. Um, So when I started studying the progression of the battle and where they were before the battle, then I, I just felt like I needed to go all the way back to Pearl Harbor and trace the lives of these uh, seven men at home in their home states where they were growing up and didn't know each other at all. And then we've, weave their stories through a uh, boot camp at Paris Island and um, then land them all on this teeny little eight mile Island um, when they all met. And some of them met on the Rochambeau on the way over on the ship and a couple of them met in Guam, but they all had this destiny that was heading them towards Iwo Jima and some of them would leave Iwo Jima and some of them never would. Right. Uh, so it, I just, it, it was just such an eye opener to me, but to, to talk to them there, the world was so different, obviously. Yeah. So they couldn't Google these islands in the Pacific. They didn't know the names of them. Most of them had never left their hometown before. So just trying to imagine having never seen an Island like that, maybe in a movie, they saw an Island in the Pacific, but beyond that, they had no comprehension of, of where they were going. And they're 18 years old. And, as uh, George Coburn, who I've become really good friends with, uh, said to me, you know, he has a great Boston accent. He says, you know, Martha, six months before I was at the prom at Arlington High School in Massachusetts, you know. <laughs> right. um, so he's like, oh, what did I know? I was just a kid. And they just kind of 
were innocent and but heroic at the same time yeah. and that's what i think is so amazing about these men just the, their humility and their courage in the face of how young they were and how little they knew about where they were going and their you know they they took orders and sometimes they drank too much beer and got in trouble like you know yeah. and so they they were kids but they were putting something they they had such a sense of duty that i think is is so admirable yeah it's 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 even hard to even fathom you know and and i Mm -hmm. I look at that and you look at the pictures of the old film of it and you and you look and they look like 35 year old men but they're 18 and 19 and you look at it 18 19 year old they look babies to me you know and i'm just like and they look like just and they are i mean it aged them obviously they grew up way too fast and saw things that that no one should should have to see Mm -hmm. and and experience and it is amazing too like you said and and i'm going to ask you how it you know obviously it changed you going through this and hearing that is obviously changing. I'm going to ask you that here in a second, but for me, uh, particularly hearing about the survivors and particularly this, this guy, Jim Goodrich, I was telling you about, I asked him and I heard the story so many times and he was kind of sick in the hospital about a year before he died. And we went down to visit him and I took two of my oldest daughters and, and I'd heard all the stories before and he told them again. And I loved hearing them again. And I asked him, I said, and he didn't. And the other thing, and I'm, you probably found this out too, is that he didn't talk about this until the mid to late '90s, when his grandson mm-hmm. was his grandson was doing a history project, and that was the first time he talked about it, which I just found amazing. But anyway, I asked him. I said, "What was your biggest takeaway from, you know, all this horrific, you know, stuff that you didn't, no one should have to see?" And he didn't hesitate without a, not even a second. He said, "I learned how to love another human being deeply," and mm. it caught me off guard. And his wife started crying. He said, it's true. And he says, I learned, you know, seeing all that, I learned how to love and love deeply. And I just thought that was an amazing Mm -hmm. lesson for someone to to say after going through all that. That's so beautiful. Yeah. That's beautiful. You know, it's so, it reminds me of, um, and, you know, I found the same thing. I was able to get a number of these men to tell me the stories of what happened to them. And, to a person, their families would say to me, he's never talked about this before. Yeah, And for all of them, they were in their 90s. And I think something happens when you make it that long and you've had enough decades maybe to process it. I don't know. But at that point, they all were very open and willing to talk to me about, about their stories. And um, so I had a letter from, I had a bunch of letters and, uh, you know, ended up and trying to trace down some of these people with not much luck, except for two different instances. But, uh, one of the letters was from George Coburn and he wrote, he wrote to my grandfather and he wrote to my aunt after Harry was killed to basically tell them that they were such good friends and how sorry he was, uh, that Harry was killed on the island. So I was writing about this moment that had been written about in these letters of when they were on Eniwetok and they got a chance to go swimming and have a little bit of a, of a beer beach party, essentially. They let them, you know, blow up some steam. They'd all been on the ship sleeping too close together and everybody was keyed up and they needed to get out and run around. And, and one of their superiors said, all right, guys, you know, we're going to take a couple hours, go swim. So they had both written about this swimming and Inuitok and how much fun it was. And 
I was getting, I got to the part of the book where I was going to write about it and I sort of had to piece it together. And I was doing all this research on what the island looks like and what do the beaches look like and what do the palm trees look like and, you know, where would the ship have pulled in and all of this kind of thing. And it just was bothering me that I couldn't ask George to fill in Mm -hmm. some of these pieces. And we had just not had any luck finding him. So I thought, you know, I'm going to just pull his file out one more time and, and look at it because it was gnawing at me. And I pulled his file out, literally got out of bed, went down to my desk, pulled it out. And I found this piece of paper that I had somehow never seen before in his file. And it was a request for his military records. And it had a note on it. And it said, you know, recently moved from Massachusetts, Medfield, Massachusetts to Florida, lost my discharge papers. Can you please send me? And it had an address in Florida. Wow. So I I so I immediately Googled obituaries for George Coburn in this Florida town and nothing came up. So I, I got in contact with Dean Laubach, who uh, is a college researcher who does a ton of World War II research who I had been working with. And um, I said, Dean, I, I think George might be alive and living in Florida. And by the next morning at 9 a.m., I was on the phone with him. Oh, my God. That's and so cool. he immediately said to me, you know, I, I said, hello. He said, hello. I said, um, he said, I said, is this George Coburn? Yes, it is. I said, well, this is Harry Gray's niece. Mm. And he just went silent yeah. on the other end of the phone. And he said, finally, he said, Martha, I think about Harry every day. Oh. And I said, well, I'm so happy that I found you. And he said, you know, I, I'm happy that you found me too. He said, we were... He said, I loved him. Mm. I loved him. He said, you know, we were, we were like brothers. And then he said, no, we were, we were closer than brothers. And he said, you know, all of us. And when you talk about what Jim Goodrich said about loving deeply, and it's almost like a way that people don't talk about friendship, you know, in normal life anymore, but these men talk about it so specifically in exactly that way. Mm -hmm. You know, he didn't hesitate at all. Here's this, you know, very tough guy who's lived his whole life. He's in his mid nineties. And he said the first thing out of his mouth, I loved him. Yeah. Loved him. And I loved him and we were closer than brothers. And he said, you know, there's something about when you have these experiences together and you're going across the ocean and you're so far from home. He said, I heard Harry's accent on the ship, on the Rochambeau. And I said, that guy's got to be from, you know, Medfield yeah. or Arlington, you know, cause he had this thick Boston accent and he's like, and you know, sure enough, we used to play football against each other. And, you know, we knew of each other. And from that minute on, he said, we were just inseparable. Um, so, and he, he's just an incredible person. And he told me what, a, he told me what a, he said, I often thought that Harry would have lived a better life than yeah. I did. Yeah. And I, and I felt guilty that he didn't get to live his life. And I did. And I said, what do you mean? He said, you know, I, I don't know. He's like, I, you know, I got divorced and I had a drinking problem for a while. And, you know, he just painted this picture that was kind of dark of his life. Yeah. And, but I subsequently, you know, I got to know him. I met his wife, who's wonderful. I met his families. And I mean, just, he's just been an amazing father. He has this beautiful family. Yeah. I mean, he has absolutely, you know, I mean, nothing that I could see to regret, 
you know, he's just a great, great guy, but he was just hard on himself and hard about being a, a survivor when so many other people um, were not. But we, we got to be great buddies and I need to call him actually. But um, yeah, he spoke so, so easily about love and about yeah. friendship in that same way. Hey, we're about halfway through the conversation and I wanted to take the time to introduce you to Ben Hutton, the sponsor of today's episode. Ben, tell our listeners what Hutton is all about. Hey, thanks, Richard. You know, we're a huge dose of leadership fans here at Hutton, so I appreciate the opportunity to sponsor your, your program and be with you here today. You know, Hutton is a commercial architecture and construction firm headquartered in Kansas, but we do work really throughout the Midwest, designing and building things like hospitals, office buildings, schools, industrial and manufacturing facilities. But really, uh, more than that, we see ourselves as leaders in the communities that we serve. Yeah, that's one thing I've always appreciated about you, knowing you all these years. I love your intention around leadership and your vision as a company. So what do you think makes Hutton different? Sure. You know, Richard, our purpose is to build life into our employees' dreams, clients' visions, and communities' future. We really start with putting our people first, and then we keep people at the center of everything that we do. It really means we walk alongside of our clients from the very first thoughts they have about a building all the way through completion and then maintenance into the future. I love it. That's why I'm glad that you're a sponsor of this show, Ben. So great. How can people learn more about your company? Yeah, so to learn just a little bit more about us, you could go to huttonbuilds.com slash togetherwebuild. Great, Ben. Thanks for being a sponsor. Exactly what Jim said, and, he, and Jim struggled the same thing. He struggled. For, he said for a huge part of his life about reconciling why he lived and why so many other great men didn't. You know, he struggled yeah. with that, and he drank a lot too. And you know, he yeah. he struggled with drinking all through the fifties and even in the sixties, mm-hmm. and and hard on himself. And his wife said, you know, he just always having nightmares and he's just like god you know and he's just like and they just they just kept trotting along and i think that it just for me when i hear stuff like that it just it put things in perspective and it and it makes me kind of embarrassed a little bit of some of the things that i bitch and moan about and you know and then and then in the grand pop culture scheme of the things too that makes me a little depressed too that just how much that they sacrifice you know and we're approaching gosh you know these all these guys are going to be gone here in the next 5 6 years you know it's just yeah. All of them. Amazing. So what what was the big takeaway for you So, as you had time to digest and kind of marinate on this experience? Are there any kind of poignant lessons or lessons where you actually changed, you think, either either both mentally or even how you look at life? Well, in a way, I miss being immersed in it once the book was done yeah. because it did make me feel – you know, it really makes you just appreciate your life and feel, I I guess it made me feel like I hadn't served anything enough, you know? Um, Absolutely. And it has given me a really, a much deeper appreciation for people who serve. There's no doubt about that. Um, And it also makes me, it makes me concerned about our culture mm-hmm. and about the future of the country in a way that I don't think I ever was before. And that's just also because of things that have happened since then in all of these stories that I cover every day. And I feel that we owe them such a great debt. And I want 
people to, I want my children to understand it and I want their children to understand it. And it's frustrating because it is hard to get people to care about it sometimes. So, um, so those are just all the things that had a big impact on, on me. And sometimes I'll just, I get these great letters from people who read the book and who have similar stories. And sometimes I'll just mark some of them and I read them to my family at dinner right? uh, so that they, and they're always moved by them. You know, it's not that people don't want to go there. Uh, so I, I, that's just a small thing that I try to do to, to keep their stories alive. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And I think it's certainly same same thing. And that's why I love hearing these stories because it gives me personally that perspective that I think is important for me to, you know, to, again, to make sure that what am I complaining about, right? It gives me that perspective. But the frustration thing that resonates when you said that because – it's the same thing. It's like if and I guess that's where I see the power in these stories, because if if everybody knew these stories, you're right. Maybe we'd be looking at things with a little a different colored lens and we wouldn't be seeing such the chaos that we see. I don't know. It is frustrating. I know. I know exactly what you're saying. Speaking yeah. of that, how do you stay positive? I mean, I, you know, you're in this all the time. And I got to be quite honest, particularly sure I've had to pull back from from this this is your livelihood and you're in it every single day and you're constantly getting bombarded and trying to communicate these and, and sound bites and what's the latest, greatest stories. How do you stay positive in, in this environment? I think I'm optimistic by nature, thankfully, which does help me. Although I do find myself in the past six months really grappling with how hard it is, you know, how hard it is to be living through this unusual environment in this time. And I think that it's one of the most tragic battles to, to battle this pandemic on a national scale. And the thing that's taken away from you, from all of us as a nation is touch and intimacy and, you know, with friends and family and being in those experiences that help people get through difficult times. So, you know, it's almost, it's, you think about these young men in World War II, removed from their families, far away. And I think that was the hardest part for them, but they did have each other and they had that incredible bond that they created. Mm -hmm. And I was worried enough about our country that social media and, you know, you're living with your smartphone and your iPad was isolating enough that it troubled me. Mm -hmm. And now it's gone to a whole nother level. And that, that concerns me. I think human interaction is the thing that is, it's, I think it's the most essential quality of life. You think about a baby that's born and abandoned and it needs to be held and touched yeah, right. to thrive. So that's a need, that's a human, basic human need. And I, I very, it very much concerns me that we are all being deprived of that to some extent in this country right now. And I think it breeds some scary things. And I think we're seeing that play out in these protests and in the the rioting that's happening. There's a very deep, there's a deep unrest and it has a lot of different tentacles right now. And so it's pretty, it's hard to stay um, the optimist given what's going on in the country right now, but I'm a big believer in, in the country and I'm a big believer in human nature. So those two things, I, I know we will prevail 
but this is a very tough challenge. It's a tough time. Yeah, I, I think the same way. I mean, and I look, I look at it too. I, I try to. I think I'm a glass half full guy. I mean, I, I feel like I, I know I am. I mean, I, I'm with you on that, and um, and I, I can't agree with you more that the, the interaction piece, the the humanness, the authenticity behind real human interactions and getting to know each other, and and yeah, it's just the, the divisiveness was already there. It it got accelerated with the lockdowns for sure. And then, you know, throw that on, then throw the George Floyd thing on that and everything just really is just, everything is just so kind of scary. It's really scary. It is. is. And I don't know, I don't know what the break, and and I'm with you that this too shall pass and we will prevail. But the thing that kind of keeps me awake is like at what, at what cost, you know, at what Mm -hmm. cost, where does it break? How long does it break? And how long, I don't know. Those things kind of keep me awake at night for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So you got the big debate coming up on Tuesday, the first one, and uh, you're going to be in Cleveland and you're doing analysis. Is that what you're doing on that day? We will. Uh, We'll be in Cleveland starting on Sunday. We'll do a special show on Sunday night at 10 o'clock, Brett Bear and I, as a preview. And then we'll do our regular shows from there on Monday night from the debate site. And then Tuesday is the big night and we will do a two-hour preview show before the debate. Chris Wallace, of course, hosting, uh, moderating, I should say. Um, and then we'll have analysis after afterwards with our panel. So it, it's going to be, it's going to be very interesting as everybody knows. And, um, there's so much to, obviously there's so much for these candidates to talk about. And I think that I hope people really tune in and, and really listen closely because, I do think it's a very consequential election. I think most people feel like they already know who they're going to vote for. We have a very slim margin of undecided voter, but we really need to be engaged, all of us at this point. And um, I think it's important. I I agree with you. I think, are there going to be audience members in this one or is it going to be just Chris with the- Very, very scant. I mean, I think it's going to look a lot more like the old- school first televised debates where there wasn't really Nixon um, Kennedy. you know it was the moderators <laughs> and the candidates and cameras and um a few you know media folks and tech folks around i think is probably going to be the feel of it well maybe that's a good thing because maybe then maybe they won't yeah. be playing for the zingers in the crowd response maybe you know <laughs> i don't know that's true i mean it does change the dynamic and um you know, we always try to, it's always impressed upon the crowd to try to not respond to these things, but, of course <laughs> right, but they always happens, do. Right. So. Yeah. Of course the Twitter verse will go crazy during the whole thing and all of that, but. Well, I'm excited. I'm excited. I always love, you know, I always love the analysis part of, of those debates. I always like tuning in and seeing what you guys say. I'm more addicted to that than actually seeing what the candidates say. I don't know why. I just, I just, <laughs> <laughs> I like seeing what you guys well, say. Well, that's about fun. It. You know, for us, it's like a big, uh, a big sports event and, um, kind of covering the two players and how they, how they perform. And I love that. I've always loved that kind of analysis and um, it, it gets tuned over time and with experience. It's one of the good things about getting older is having been through these a number of times. Now it sort of trains you what to look for. And it also keeps your antenna pretty sharp for what, what stands out. So I, I love that. I love that part of the job. Yeah. Uh, what, uh, how much, how many debates is this for you now? I mean, how many have we got into your belt? So this is my fifth presidential election. Wow. Um, so, yeah. So I've been doing it since 04. And um, I love it. I've always loved it. I've loved politics since I was a little kid. And it, um, it's been, I feel really lucky to have this front row seat 
for all these years. Yeah. What I think it, that's a great gig. I think, uh, I mean, I would love to do, if I was going to do anything in that kind of arena, I think I would want to do what you're doing kind of in that kind of analysis, kind of watching and, and talking about it afterwards. Yeah. And you got so many great colleagues to, to work around too. That's what I think would be fun. You, you guys, Absolutely. You know, working we with, have a great group. Yeah. yeah. And Brett would be fun to work with, I think. He seems like he'd be definitely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Brett's great. Very great. fun. Well, looking past the election, what's next for you? Do you got any other books in, in the works? Anything else that you, you're, you're working on? What does the future look like for Martha McCallum? You know, that's a good question. I have a couple of projects kicking around in my head. I sort of decided not to decide which one of them to pursue until after the election. So the election is sort of my main focus right now. Um but you know, something again, it, it's a, it's an all in experience. And I feel that I have to feel as strongly about it as I did about this first project. So I, like I said, I have some ideas, but nothing, nothing that I've committed to at this point. Well, I'll wait in bated breath to see what comes down the pike. I mean, <laughs> the, the way the book is written, by the way, I just, you know, the, it sucks you in. It's written really well. And I love the narrative. I, I love the, in the opening and talking about going to your grandparents' house and the visuals and, and finding the letters and everything. It just, I love just everything about it. So you did a really good job. And um, thank you, Richard. I, I, I appreciate think, that. I think it's a great book. I encourage everybody out there to, to get unknown valor for the reasons that I think me and Martha talked about here for giving that proper perspective in, in, in reminding us of the sacrifices that were made by so many that we can't even fathom. Right. And um, we're our biggest worries. We're, you know, how am I going to charge my, my iPhone when I don't have my charger? I right? know. <laughs> I, know. I know. Being stuck without a charger. Terrible, yeah. right? Right. So, <laughs> Martha, I know you got a hard uh, time to, to go. I could talk to you for hours about this. Hopefully, you can come back. And, and when you got new projects, you always Oh, gotta, I'd love to. It's got, really been a pleasure talking to yeah, you, Richard. Have a welcome welcome home always here at Dose of Leadership. Hang on the line for a little bit while we stop the recording. We'll chat for a second. But, uh, man, gosh, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. You bet. Hey, thanks so much for tuning into the show. I hope you got some value out of this episode. If you did, please do me a huge favor. Tell somebody about this show. Tell your spouse, tell your kids, tell your coworkers. Let them know about the value that Dose of Leadership brings to your world. Go to doseofleadership.com. You can learn more about my services. If you're looking for somebody to speak, teach, or coach about leadership, I'm your guy. I'm known for my ability to transform individuals and organizations, teaching them the concept of creating a culture of decentralized leadership. I do think that is the secret sauce to facing all the challenges that we face today. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. I look forward to the next time we're together. And until the meantime, make it a great one. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.